The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Buongiorno. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. So, will Italy's elections next month lead to a populist surprise? That's the worry many folks in Milan, where I spent most of last week, expressed to me. They're concerned the Cinque Stelle movement, which is leading the polls, could tap into enough discontent among voters to win enough votes to form a government just barely. While the more likely outcome seems to be a hung parliament and a grand coalition of center-left and center-right parties with Silvio Berlusconi in the mix, you can't totally discount a surprise. In a recent poll published by La Repubblica, 47% of those surveyed said they had yet to make up their minds. Either way, an Italian electoral surprise is not a concern shared by my guest on this week's podcast, Pier Carlo Padoan. He's run the Ministry of Economy and Finance for the past four years and under its last two prime ministers. Padoan and I sat down for a one-on-one conversation to open our first annual Breaking Views predictions event in Milan last week. Besides politics, we discussed unfinished business from his perspective in the country's efforts to institute economic and other reforms. No matter who winds up on top in Rome, Padoan's primary message was pretty simple. Keep up the reforms to make Italy more competitive and more prosperous. Allora ascolta. Feels lonely up here. Yeah, this is, we, we were joking, it was like the Politburo or something, I think. Uh, uh, um, but no, you're not on trial. Okay. Um, that I can assure you. Not um, yet. Not yet, but we'll see how things proceed. Uh, no, you've, you have been leading the economic and sort of finance portfolio for the country for almost four years now. Um, I just thought it would be great to get your sense. We don't have to recount the enti- all of the progress Italy has made, and it has made quite a bit. But I'd love to get your sense of the, you know, what you think were the main accomplishments that, that, that you and the government have achieved on the economic and, and, uh, the economic and financial front. Well, the list is easy, and I'll apologize for repeating it many times over. Uh, start from a basic variables. Growth has become positive and sustained, and I will believe that it will continue to be sustained. Uh, more than one million jobs have been created through quality, maybe lagging quantity, but this is part of the agenda going forward. The banking sector has been looked at very carefully. We have introduced major reforms, but we also have dealt with a number of localized, yes, worrying, specific crises. Seven banks out of 600, however. So now we are in a situation of having the worst at, the, at our back and having to define a strategy going forward. It is a window of opportunity or a bifurcation point, you choose it. And simply the country cannot miss the window and cannot choose the wrong road ahead. And the country, and this is my last point, has huge potential. Uh, The country needs more reforms, more of the same, more implementation of what has been introduced, and new reforms, so that we have enough time to seek the benefits of a more friendly fiscal environment, in, in in all senses, structural measures that are beginning to work through, and therefore make, to end with a very academic point, the cyclical recovery more structural. So... 
Let's go to the unfinished business, because that is something that voters are going to have to think about as they head to the polls. In the unfinished business, uh, well, there are a number of, of things that can be put under the title of unfinished business, but I'd like to put one. We are back to growth and back to, back to employment, but this is unequally distributed. So inequality and therefore frustration going to yes. one part of the title is still very much in the country. And since you mentioned the polls coming up, frustration will be an element which will guide uh, voting preferences, I feel. And uh, in spite of the lots of good things that have been done. So the country is still in a difficult situation. It is the duty of policymaking to continue going towards the path that has been followed so far because the results are there. They have to be better appreciated, better, be, better understood. Do you, it's interesting, you, in the past couple of days I've had the pleasure of speaking to business folks here and there is a sense that certainly Milan and some of the cities are, are in Lombardia growing quite well, but that a lot of the rest of the country is not growing, even, even still contracting. Uh, you mentioned that there is this unequal recovery. Um, what is your sense of, of, the, of, the, of the tenor of the recovery, and what is your sense of, of a way to kind of pull it all and make it a unified growth? Well, the recovery, as I said, is uh, largely driven by a favorable cyclical phase in Europe and elsewhere. But the structural elements are beginning to feed through. And uh, a bit half-joking, uh, when I go back to academic research in a few years' time, I'll probably look are at Are you the... sure about that? I mean... No, don't, don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, what I'd like to do in my spare time, in, in three to four years' time, when there will be enough evidence, we'll look at what has happened in terms of structural improvements, potential output growth maybe is, is, is going to be higher than we think, which would be a sign of uh, structural measures feeding through. Uh, so on the aggregate level, more, out, more potential growth. On the financial level, more speed in debt going down. Uh, the banking sector back to normal things. And as you said, uh, having these benefits in terms of employment, but also welfare and expectations be more evenly distributed. And there, policy can do a lot. Uh, just to remind one piece of evidence, which is unquestioned, unquestionable. Inequality goes down as jobs go, go up. So as, as far as we are able to produce more jobs, more long-term permanent contracts, jobs, this will also, as a byproduct, reduce inequality, both geographically and sectorally. What, um, I mean, looking back, you mentioned the banking sector, the, the banking bailout, as it were, for that the government had to... Had to you know, bailout in Europe is not allowed to be... Produced. Sorry, the banking assistance that the government was able to provide to the financial industry. Um, you know, is, what, what did you learn from that? Is there anything you could take away? What would you do differently if you could? What I would do differently is to think uh, about, at the European level, how to phase in a dramatically different regulatory and surveillance regime which has been introduced very sharply and very quickly, too quickly, in a crisis situation. So uh, this has made things much more difficult than could have been. And while sharing the same aims and the same principles that underpin the major reforms in true banking union in Europe, this sh should have been introduced much more softly. Uh, 
and taking into account another aspect, which is a lesson we take home from, at least in my case, is that the European banking infrastructure and institutional setup is very complicated. It's also driven by different institutions who still need to coordinate much better among themselves so that at the country level, response can collaborate much more easily than has been the case with the European institutions. In other words, it's okay to have tighter rules, it's okay to move towards a Berlin BRRD framework, it has to be done gradually, and it has to be done taking into account that financial crises do happen, and there is always a risk that policy mistakes can aggravate the situation rather than improving it. I mean, in the Italian case, was, wasn't one of the problems with the bail-in a sort of a domestic problem, which is that you had many of the depositors also ended up, would have, been, would have taken big haircuts because they had bought bonds and, and, and debentures in, the, in these institutions. Um, wasn't that one of the difficulties in sort of... It was certainly one of the difficulties. It was one of the consequences of a very sharp and abrupt introduction of new rules with the bail-in regime was to not to consider a very simple fact, which we realized maybe too late, that the new BRRD has changed the risk profile of assets that have been held by retail uh, savers, households, and not institutions, therefore with very little knowledge of financial issues, has changed that risk profile from night to day mm. in a WIFI and these people were suddenly founding themselves holding assets that they, they thought was very low risk or riskless assets, which eventually became suddenly very high risk and therefore produced a loss when the mechanism was implemented. This is why we managed to pr produce uh, correction actions that, at least in the case of retail savers, could protect them to a large extent, if not 100%, to a very large extent from the consequences of this new regime they inadvertently found themselves involved in. Right, right. I mean, not to dwell on it, but shouldn't the, I just wonder if the CONSOB or the Bank of Italy owns some of that responsibility rather than some European uh, bureaucracy that changed the risk weightings. I mean, I, I mean again, it's, you don't have to, uh, the, name of, the, name, the name of the game is the new rules are uh, introduced at the European level, yeah. are managed at the European level by different institutions, and the instruments that national institutions had been using until the very last minute, the next day were taken off the table and they were told, you cannot play with that game anymore. Right. So this is how I personally lived through this situation. It was a dramatic jump into a new reality. And you know, it is actually, I was talking to somebody today who said, I told them we were doing this conversation, said, you know, it's pretty amazing there was never a run on any bank, Monte di Paschi, any of these banks, which could have happened. I mean, you could have. Oh, yes. That. How did you keep that from, I mean, you must have been so worried that some social media snap of, you know, 30 people standing in line in front of a Monte di Paschi branch in Siena would create a, a waterfall of, of redemption. Well, it didn't. <laughs> All right. That was luck, are you saying? Or was that, or was that a... Uh... I let historians decide. Right, right. Um, let's turn to the coming elections. You, you mentioned them. The financial markets, if you look at our showing almost... I mean, remarkable calm 
about the outcome, pricing in almost no volatility or spread you know, when you look out towards um, the days following the vote. Um, how worried should the world be about a, a, a una sorpresa italiana on March 4th? Italian surprises are always pleasant, so <laughs> they should not be worried more. Uh, but my in partial interpretation of the fact that markets are not reacting, which is good news, is that maybe there is the idea that fundamentally the economy will continue to grow, maybe at not a Japanese rate as we, it was in the 1960s, but a fairly sustained rate. Jobs will continue to grow, welfare will increase, and after we have gone to March 4th, we will probably realize that, yes, ex ante, there might be a lot of uncertainty, but ex post, Italian politics will surprise you on the upside by finding solutions that may be unsinkable today. So let's assume, okay, let's assume the, the surprise is a good one, as you say, um, and uh, a sort of center-right-left coalition, not a populist radical um, government is formed. What, what should its policies be in, on, from the economic perspective? My policy, well, my policies, those policies should... Uh, sure they're not your policies? My preferred policies, I forgot okay. to add that, would be one that continue in the combination of fiscal consolidation, supporting growth in respect of the treaties and of what markets expect, and a renewed effort in the structural reform agenda. We need to introduce more reforms. More than everything, we need to implement many reforms that have been passed by parliament but still need to be implemented. And the reason is very simple, because sooner or later, maybe sooner than you expect, these reforms pay out in terms of better performance, growth, and job, make, and job creation. And one of the things that you see, I mean, the La Repubblica had a poll that they published over the weekend that showed something like 47% of those um, <coughs> surveyed were still undecided. Um, the other thing is there seems to be, have been a change in, in Italians' perspective or, or, or view towards the European Union. Um, what do you think explains that? Why have, have, have many Italians lost faith in the EU? Is there, and if so, why and what can be done to shore that up? Um, well, for many Italians, uh, Europe has meant for a long time tighter budget constraints uh, in the belief that the reason why we need to lower debt is because Europe or Brussels want it, not because it's in our interest. So there is a bit of a misconception there. To some extent, also what I was mentioning earlier, the way bank crises were dealt with reflected new European rules. And last but not least, the migration issue, which is seen as something affecting and impacting the whole of Europe, but with only Italy left to manage life-saving, manage the tragedy, and manage the borders, which are borders of Europe, not borders of Italy. <coughs> so you can easily add all these things up and in the mind of many citizens equate Europe with troublemaking and, Europe and not problem-solving. Right. I mean, the, the, of course, the, the migration issue is a cultural one that's affecting all of the sort of developed economies. Um, you do have leverage in that conversation with the EU because you are 
you are the board, you are the front line. Does that, is that helping your relationships with, you know, with the rest of the European Union? Well, as usual, in Europe, you never get anything for free. <laughs> uh, I think that's life, sir. Uh, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> so, first of all, you have to show that the problem is there, there's a lot of pressure. Second, you have to show, like the government did, that there are solutions that can not just uh, deal with the pressure coming from the flows, but also revert the flows. And I have a strategy which implies going at the sources, at the source countries of migration, which is not just Libya, it's down deeper in Africa. But all of this, by definition, requires a European response. One of the things I'd like to see in the next EU budget structure is a set of lines dedicated to what I call European public goods defense of borders, migration, security, and, and military defense initiatives. Europe needs to deal with those issues because these are global and European issues. They're not national issues anymore. Can I ask you, the emergence, or the, you know, the, the emergence of Donald Trump, America first, how, is that having a galvanizing effect on, your, on the EU? Is it forcing um, leaders like yourself to to think more clearly about what it is you want the European integration, um, economic and other political, to look like? Is it, or is it having a divisive effect, the way it is among the American people? Well, as far as leaders are concerned, uh, there is one political leader in this country, which, as you may have heard, said that Trump was right in raising tariffs and Italy should do the same, which, of course, as we all know, generates a lot of additional trade. <laughs> So this is one way through which Trump, Trump, the Trump messages come in. But to be frank, I, sometimes I feel puzzled about what the American president really means when he says something and then the next day he says something very different. So uh, bottom, bottom line, maybe this is one of the situations in which because of a, an external pressure, Europe gets more united and defines, uh, gets herself into uh, to pieces and uh, up, uh, up to the challenge, like Brexit in a way, which has been exercising, in my view, a positive pressure towards more integration in Europe rather than less. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned debt um, as, as, I'm just curious, what is the, your, how would you take forward the fiscal consolidation, reduction of the debt in Italy, if you were in the new government? Well, certainly the country needs to have a strategy to reduce debt. And that strategy is, first of all, through higher nominal growth. So let's hope that uh, finally the ECB gets some decent inflation in place, which when I was a kid was, was not allowed to be told in, in, <laughs> in, in nice environments. Yeah. Say a bit more inflation, more growth, which is needed for a number of reasons. I am not, if, if you had that question in mind, I'm not overly concerned about QE ending because this will happen gradually. It's already in the market's expectation. In a world of higher interest rates, we will have more inflation and more flexibility in nominal adjustment, which is something we're missing. But also, uh, there are some possible elements which can be introduced in terms of introducing in the political system more incentives to be consistent about debt reduction and possibly some financial incentives to 
ease the pressure on debt creation. But to make it very clear, I'm very concerned about ideas of so-called risk-weighting uh, portfolio reallocation, which would force banks to put a cap on the amount of or the share of sovereign paper that they have in their balance sheet in the wrong belief that by so doing, this would help the adjustment. This would create more problems, not less. And that, well, that would create, the people would have to stop buying sovereign bonds, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, and, and if, you put a... the, if you go down the chain, this would mean that a country would have to go to ask for support, maybe the, the future ESM, and if other ideas I've, I've read about are actually implemented, ESM would require uh, automatic debt restructuring, which would be a disaster. In my experience, I still have to see a northerly debt restructuring episode uh, <laughs> yeah. that we, we could live it with. It sounds okay, debt restructuring, as a word, as a oh, concept. Oh, it sounds very nice. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty ugly. Can I ask you, um, one of the things, uh, you've been very proactive, your government, and, and you in particular, in trying to, to, to create um, incentives for, to make Milan a, a, a leading financial center. Uh, you've, uh, you've succeeded. We've, Lisa Yuka, our uh, columnist, has now moved to, uh, to Milan. Hello, Lisa. Thank you. And I think that's, that's great. But how do you get a million Lisa Yukas to move to, um, you know, how do you also bring back that brain drain of Italian talent all around the world? Well, this is already happening, which means that the combination of a good environment, a good living conditions, the appropriate fiscal incentives without exaggerating, mm -hmm. uh, but also creating synergies, creating a critical mass of industry in the city, all these things combined together would make Milan definitely more attractive. And maybe I will move to Milan myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, before I let you go, I want to ask you just what, what, is your, what keeps you up at night when you look out over the next 12, 18 months, um, and what gets you up in the morning? Uh, Besides, coffee. what keeps you me me waking uh, awake at night is the disastrous uh, performance of the Rome soccer team. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I can't help you on that. I'm afraid. Um, and what and what what is what is you what are you most hopeful about? I'm hopeful about uh, the. As I said before, the fact that all the good work that has been done, and I'm talk not talking personally, over the past four to five years is not destroyed because of the wrong misperception by some political positions. I think that's a pretty clear message. I thank you, Minister, for coming. And please, everybody, give him a round of applause. There you have it. Neither Padua nor indeed the financial markets are pricing in an Italian jolt away from a pro-European Union bias. But for anyone who's followed Italy knows, always be prepared for surprises. Its unpredictability, apart from always being able to eat well, is one of the more endearing qualities of the country and her people. Join us again soon for another episode of The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and arrivederci.